we've all been there and we all will be there at some point in our life where our actions are consequential. And even if they may not be literally life or death, they can certainly feel like they're life or death. So training for better attention for all of us has value because of that reality. Okay, welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais and by trade and training, I am a sport and performance psychologist. And I'm fortunate to work with some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers across the planet. And the idea behind these conversations behind this podcast is to learn from people, to pull back the curtain, to explore how they've committed to mastering both their craft and their minds. And as you know, our minds are one of our greatest assets. And if you want to learn more about how you can train your mind, there's just a quick little reminder right here to check out the online psychological training course that we built, pulling together the best practices to meet this unique intersection of the psychology of high performance and the psychology of well-being. And we walk through 16 essential principles and skills for you to be able to train your mind in the same very way that we train world-class athletes and performers. And you can find all of this at findingmastery.net forward slash course. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash findingmastery with the code findingmastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. 
Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, this week's conversation is with Dr. Amishi Jha, a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. And she serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. Her work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. These are serious organizations with serious people, and she's got her arms around one of the serious elements of becoming your very best. And we're going to get into that in a moment. Amishi has received coverage in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and more. And her TED Talk on how to tame your wandering mind has over 5 million views. And she is the author of Peak Mind, which came out on October 19th, 2021. So go check that out for sure. You can probably guess where this conversation is headed. It's all about awareness and focus and how you can train your mind to pay attention more effectively. And with that, let's jump right into this week's conversation with Dr. Amishi Jha. Amishi, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to introduce your work to our community. And some folks have definitely followed along and um, some have not been familiar with it. So let's just kind of do a broad sweep really quickly. Um, What are you most fascinated by in your work? I'm most fascinated by the brain's capacity to alter the way it functions in a beneficial manner. And my curiosity has been around how to do that, how to actually guide people to do that. All right. So is the first part about neuroplasticity or is it about the functional aspect of um, attention and training and uh, introspection? Or is it more about the neuroplasticity, the actual changing of the brain? I guess I don't see a distinction. It's like whatever we're doing functionally is going to affect the way the brain changes. I'm not so interested in brain area A or circuit X, Y, or Z change. Those are just the details of how it shakes out. But it's really regarding how to drive change in a beneficial manner through some form of cognitive training we can offer people. Okay, perfect. And then, so as a, that's the general frame, how did you get into this field, you know, and like, wh- where did it start? Maybe just peel back, you know, a couple layers, a couple decades, like <laughs> talk a little bit about your childhood and what led you into this, into this experience. Yeah. Never thought, you know, if you, if you just, before we rewind, let's just fast forward, like where I am today, I never thought I would spend my career studying something like mindfulness meditation. Never occurred to me. In fact, I would say I was, I would be shocked at myself if I were, if I were to rewind 30 years. And there's multiple reasons why, which we can, we can chat about. So rewinding back growing up, I was always interested in psychology and it's funny now because I would always tell people that I was going to be a physician. That was just, you know, it's, it's almost a joke to say as an Indian person to say, you're going to be a physician. It's like, well, isn't that what you're required to do? 
But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in this country, there's so many Indian doctors. So it was certainly something that was an expectation for my family that I would do something along the lines of either medicine or, or maybe be an accountant or a software engineer or something like that. And so I really did frame my life in those terms, volunteered at hospitals, knew I was going to study some kind of science in college. But for fun, I would read psychology textbooks. My mom was actually a psychology major. Um, and I remember even when I was in maybe 10th grade, I took a course, I grew up in Chicago, I took a course at the University of Chicago on like moral psychology. And <laughs> I'm like a kid in this class, but I just thought it was fun. So it was kind of a surprise that when I started undergrad, I said, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to have this as my major. But again, thinking that I was going to be a physician, I decided to do biological psychology, which was never offered as a, as a, as a major until then. But as it turns out, I just don't like being in hospitals and uh, it's just not my thing. And I was not prepared to have that kind of a career of, of treating people that were ill. But I really lucked out because one of my rotations as a hospital volunteer was actually in a, in a brain injury unit. And that's where, what well, you asked me a moment ago regarding kind of what my work most broadly is interested in or curious about, what I learned there and what I saw actually week after week of going in and helping these patients is neuroplasticity in action. There was this one particular patient I remember who came in, or when I came in, he was, I thought, a quadriplegic. And what we, what I realized is that actually he wasn't a quadriplegic. He was a, he, he did have some movement in his arm. And over the weeks that went by, he was actually, he went from not being able to move at all to actually being able to guide his own wheelchair. And he would tell me that in the evenings, uh, you know, when he was trying to fall asleep, he'd actually rehearse the movements of moving his chair with part of his hand. And I was so like, that is amazing. He's, he's literally changing the way his brain functions by just training it. So that set those seeds in motion. And then through a very, that's sort of really rewinding uh, the story back, but then fast forwarding to, I knew I was gonna be in a neuroscience sort of uh, professional trajectory, studied attention because attention is very much related to neuroplasticity in that whatever it is that we pay attention to in the moment can reconfigures the way the brain is organized. So it's still really tied to this idea that how we make our mind changes the way the brain operates. But then it wasn't till about 2008, after I'd had my own research lab for several years that I happened upon the topic of mindfulness and really decided to take it on as a, as a serious topic of study within my own lab. Okay, so let's parse out some technical words just for a moment. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do focus, concentration, and attention. And okay. I know the bulk of your work is around attention. So let's just, let's just um, level on those words for a moment. Yeah, right. I would say all three are obviously very much interrelated. When I think of the kind of superordinate category, it would be the term attention. And within that, focus is a particular type of attention, something we'd formally call the brain's orienting system. And the kind of metaphor I like to use for that system, just based on what we know it does to brain function is like a flashlight. So wherever we direct that computational resource, the ability to focus, we get more crisp, clear, granular information. We select for it. Everything else that is not within the flashlight's focus is sort of dulled down. 
concentration is related to that. It's in my mind, the ability to sustain that level of focus over time. But then there are other aspects of attention that fall outside of those, those terms, which happy to talk about if you'd like. Yes, for sure. <laughs> which ones, which ones are you interested in? So, so really there's three main broad categories of attention, which, you know, I just, I just, what marvels me about this particular topic, which happens to be my, my life's sort of focus is that our attention is the success story of our, of our evolution. And, and that's sort of true for everything about the brain right now, that whatever, whatever we are right now, no matter how annoying some of the qualities of our mind may be, they were selected for, they were advantaged and they probably have a use in our in our lives so just to kind of keep that in mind but attention in particular we think evolved to solve a very big problem that the brain had which is that there is just so much information out there that this limited thing called the human brain could not possibly analyze and understand it all so attention was the solution to subsample a bit of that external environment and frankly the internal environment to get more information about it and that really is what this focusing capacity is but there's another way another kind of almost antithesis of that way of that attention works which is about sampling something that isn't about the nature of the content like the flashlight focusing here versus there but it's almost about what's relevant in time so it's like, what's most important right now? And that may not even allow you to know what aspects of what's happening right now is most important. And this goes to another system of attention that, again, as a metaphor, I use this kind of model of a floodlight, metaphor of a floodlight. So very much the opposite of focused and narrow, it's broad and receptive, and it's about whatever shows up right now. And we want to take that kind of orientation so that we can take fast action, regardless of, of what shows up, if that action is needed. And I think about this often, even when I'm driving, if you see a flashing yellow light when you're driving, it puts you in that mindset, sort of this formally called the alerting system, just alert, aware, receptive. You don't know what you need to pay attention to. Something weird is happening. So just be ready when you're driving, at least. And, um, and it's, it's about deselecting in that sense. The only thing you're really privileging is the now. And so then, you're oh, wait, wait, let me, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's good. So you're deselecting in that moment. So broad external awareness, broad external attention, um, is the you're you're suggesting that that is part of a deselection because when I think of broad external, I yeah. think about um, that I'm taking in as much information as I can, and then when something like a yellow or a red or green or something, uh, let's say a yellow light grabs my attention, then I have narrowed my external focus, my next external attention on that yellow light. And then what I need to do is go back out to broad to go scan and find, um, have a better orientation of the setting. And then I might go back to a narrow, uh, external narrow attention as well, all within those three seconds or, you know, three nanoseconds, whatever it might be, I've also processed some internal processing. So my attention can go external, broad and narrow and internal broad and narrow. Right. Now you're talking about night of model, mm. <laughs> but no, yeah. that's not the way I'm parsing this, by the way, what I'm saying is the capacity to focus is, is really about high signal to noise. Something is relevant and advantaged 
and everything else is disadvantaged, actively disadvantaged. And that's what I mean by this flashlight. It's illuminated relative to everything else. And it doesn't matter if it's in the external environment or internal environment. You can direct the flashlight and focus to the external environment as you're scanning, selecting for specific things and internally. So right now, if I said, you know, um, Mike, tell me if, uh, what are the sensations of uh, the feelings of your feet right now on the ground? It wasn't part of where your flashlight was, but the minute I said that, you could direct it willfully and get that internal sensation. Or even if I said, think back to what you had for dinner last night, what was the most delicious thing in that? Mm-hmm. It might not have been in your mind, but you directed that flashlight of attention to a memory to then do a selection process. So it for the purposes of what I'm talking about, the, this orienting system is about narrowing and selecting, and it's internal or external. Mm-hmm. And then the second system, this floodlight metaphor, is really around broadening and being receptive. So you're turning down the gain on the signal to noise distinction, and it can be within the external environment and the internal environment. So it's a very different model. And from the from the kind of brain science point of view, we know that these are different and distinct brain circuits that allow selection to happen and then sort of uh, this vigilant receptive mode to happen. Okay. When I heard you explain it the second time, I still heard the same thing. I still heard the broad external. It's about the it's about the narrow versus broad, but the narrow system. Broad. It can go either way, internal or external. Internal or external. Right? So that's one distinction. Okay. That's but one the broad and, and broad and narrow certainly that's the case. Mm-hmm. And then there is a but this is still regarding uh, selection based on some domain, whether it's content or mm-hmm. time. Right. The first one is really around content, like narrow to this content. The second one is about right now, what it, what is it? I'm scanning in my external field or internal field and allowing whatever's happening to happen. And then the third way we select is based on our own goals, which is some, the central executive or this executive functioning system. So that the goals that are held, what is relevant for us, what guides our behavior can guide the way we select information. And that, that central executive is something we call, uh, you know, the, the metaphor would be like a juggler. So that your job is to ensure that all the balls on the air are in the air. You're not necessarily engaging in each individual task, just like the executive of a, of a company wouldn't engage in each individual task. But you have to oversee to ensure that your goals and your behavior are aligned. So is that juggler to not mix the metaphor in any way, but is the juggler in your mind, your value systems and your framework, your psychological framework and your value systems? Not necessarily, but they can be brought into the juggler's purview. So okay. your framework, your mindset, your orientation would be kind of longer term, mm-hmm. longer term kind of memories that are held. What the juggler is doing is really bringing them into the, the in the moment selection process. So it could be that I tend to be the kind of person who really values helping another person. That's just my orientation. But it turns into something that the executive network will handle if in this moment, I see somebody who's dropped all their groceries and I'm like, oh, I'm a person who helps people. The goal right now should be to help this person. And now I engage in that action to ensure that it's it's aligned with the current goals. So the framework and the mindsets can come into the present moment um, to allow the juggler to do that. Yeah. Okay. Not the same right. thing. So, but the, you're saying they're not the same thing. You're saying that the the virtues, the framework, the psychological framework and principles is, um, I'll substitute virtues right now for it. But if there's something that I have uh, developed a value set around, then 
that is operating in the backdrop or for, to inform the juggler? Or is that something that the juggler um, is attending to as well? The juggler's attending to it. And it's okay. in it, when they, when a particular goal aligns with the backdrop of a mindset or an ethical code or a particular mm -hmm. long-term vision, mm -hmm. it's brought to the front of the mind. But what I'm focusing on when I talk about attention is actually the in the moment content. So the it in the moment content. Yeah. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with their co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. Well, you're talking about the 
the way that our brain and our attention has come to be. And I think it's useful to talk about the high road and the low road, the processing speed by which we gate out some signal and noise ratio, meaning that some information is coming in at double or triple the time of other information. And do you, is that a useful framework to, to work through to get to some of the deeper stuff that you're, that you're onto? What I, what I have been interested in and what we've been really focusing on is these three different ways of orienting, uh, actually the three different systems of attention and the vulnerabilities of each of those systems and then how to train and strengthen them. Because as you already pointed out in that example you gave of like, I'm focusing in and I'm broadening and I'm focusing in, these don't work independently. They're constantly holding hands and coordinating with each other. But it ends up that they're all vulnerable to the same things. They're all vulnerable to what we might even call kryptonite in the mind. Um, and they're all limited in capacity and they're all trainable. So, you know, there's, there's certain themes that, that go across all of them, but that's really where my mind is right now is, is understanding from a broad um, kind of brain basis perspective, how are these things instantiated in the brain? How do they start falling apart and what can I do to protect them and train them? Great. Okay. So we can get into the mechanics of that. And then one more subtlety that I want to understand is when you use the word brain and use the word mind, how do you differentiate? How are you differentiating those two? Yeah, those are at this point as, and in my field, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. So the exact intersection of those two is what I spend my time thinking about. How is it that the functioning, the processing, um, that allows us to engage and live and have thoughts, feelings, emotions, plan action. How is that instantiated and maybe even constrained by the hardware of our own brain? Some of our own ideas regarding how functions might occur may not be supported by the way the brain networks actually operate. So it's a constraining space. The brain is sort of the constraint on any kind of model we might have about how functioning happens. That's a cool way to think about it, that the brain is the constraint. I haven't heard that um, that frame used. I, it feels right, you know, because the mind is more expansive, the software, and more malleable in that respect. But um, when you separate those two, which I'm not suggesting that that is an accurate way to do it, but when we do try to think about the different systems, are you thinking about it in, in a hardware-software framework, or is there a different analogy that you use? Um. I mean, hardware software works, but what I'm really talking about when I say constraint is, for example, like we just talked, let's just go back to the things we were talking about, this flashlight versus floodlight. Those are essentially, you could say that they're two different functions, right? They're just two functions that the brain does. It narrows and selects or it broadens and receives. But now when you look at the brain circuits that implement those two functions and their relationship to each other, you learn something very important, which is they have what's called a antagonistic relationship toward each other, which means that one, one network is active. Let's say the focusing network is active. It actively suppresses this ability to broadly expand your attention. Mm. So that means that, you know, when you like, for example, you're immersed in reading a book or deep in thought and somebody walks into a room and says, you know, Mishi, it takes me a minute to kind of realize my mind, somebody's called me. That makes sense from a brain science point of view, because yes, the functioning of that network that perceives broad input from my environment in an unselected fashion is dialed down a bit. So it takes me an extra amount of time to kind of catch that 
and then to basically allow that network's processing to come back online to then say, what was that that was just said? Oh, my name. Yeah, yes, I'm over here. So that's what I mean by constraint. It's that we can have all kinds of ideas about functions in the abstract as sort of, you know, boxes of, of behavior and, and thought or the nature of, of information processing. But when we start seeing the way the brain implements and instantiates these, it starts allowing us to see how things may go wrong or how things can go way better, depending on how we, we train uh, what's going on and the realistic ex expectations of what's possible. Okay, so so that the constraint you're using a bit of a bottleneck theory that there's there's real there's it's not that just it's like an on off that there's only one switch either broad or external or whatever it's like but there's a bottleneck of processing that takes place and that would map nicely onto some of the findings around the default mode network and ways to dampen it and um, ways to quiet that down. Yeah, I mean, I'm just making a very broad statement that the mm -hmm. re you asked me, you know, what's the difference between mind and brain? So I'm just saying, well, you know, mind is like all these things, but they're not sort of all happening at the same time. And the way in which they relate to each other, may, we may be able to learn about that by seeing how the brain actually implements them. So for, and, and I just gave one example that you can't both be broad and narrow simultaneously just based on what we see in terms of the way the brain operates. In the same way you just described, we can't be both internal and external, typically simultaneously. Um, it'll cause a conflict. So we've got to figure out a way, if we want to be able to do these things that typically are antagonistic, we might want to really train for that specifically so there's better or smoother coordination. So one is a comment regarding sort of the standard way the brain operates. The second is a comment on the possibilities that exist when you start understanding the nature of those dynamics in the typical fashion, in the dysfunctional fashion, fashion, and then maybe even in the optimizing fashion. Okay, cool. When I think of signal to noise ratio, the way that I describe noise is easy, right? It's all the extraneous variables that are not necessarily relevant to the task at hand. I think about the signal as being only available in the present moment and is connected to the most relevant aspects or tasks that are required. And so that signal can be internal or external to your point as well. Do you, is, do you see signal to noise ratio in a different way or does that yeah. feel familiar no, to you? It completely aligns with, with um, what I'm saying. I'm saying in some sense that the signal to no the determiner of what signal and noise happens by this brain system called executive control. And then the flashlight is implementing that signal to noise privileging. So, you know, my, my executive function says, oh, right now, the most important thing you should be paying attention to is the Mike's face on the screen. And then my orienting system, the flashlight says yes. And to do that, focus here. So they work together in that manner. But yes, I agree with you on, on the, the way that you're describing sig signal to noise aligns with the way that I, I think about it. And then the executive functioning part, is that the juggler? Are you talking that? Is that yeah, the juggler? Yeah, that's just okay. one metaphor we can use for it. Yep. And then so so I'm interested in how to train and, and you are as right. well. The the juggler. And so I think about it in at least two ways to be a bit of a reductionist here. One is through frameworks. And um, you know, that's really about one's personal philosophy. And so if somebody values to your point uh, A over B, they're more likely to find A in an environment. And mm -hmm. so if they, 
you know, if they value kindness, they're more likely to see kindness in others. They're more likely to act kindness and in return receive kindness. If they're more interested in uh, B, which is maybe a, um, a model of uh, scarcity, then when we scan the world, we find things that like, look, we're running out here, we're running out there. And then we feel in return um, some scarcity. And, you know, this, these are philosophies that people work from. Another word for philosophy, you know, in a broad sense is the framework that you're operating from. And so, so I'm interested in how to develop both the framework or the philosophy of the juggler, but also how to train the particular skills for people to attend better, to hold their gaze and to attend better uh, to the most relevant task or the most relevant details of the task at hand. So where, where are you more interested in those two? I mean, I would say the bulk of what I've been working on is not the former, not the mindset framework orientation, except to understand what is present, like to, to even know what framework you're holding. Um, that's a whole other journey. But, but more like if you know what it is or you know what stance to take, meaning you don't know what it is, but you want to be able to receive information, how do you train for that? Okay. Cool. I want to dive into that because that it's like that. That is in exact high speed, fast paced, high pressured environments. It's a requirement that we can attend to the most necessary elements, uh, internal and external, to be able to pivot and adjust. And you know, the, the responding and adjusting is uh, one of the most important capabilities inside of high high speed environments. That being said, is are you more interested in going upstream to how to attend, or are you more interested in the downstream, how you respond to whatever it is that you're attending to? I mean, I'm interested in both. I would you are say, interested in both. Okay. Yeah, I would say the mon the things, the kinds of things that we've been looking at in the research studies that we've done have really been regarding what are vulnerabilities that we see often in people that happen to be basically high stress, high demand, time pressured individuals across professions for whom the ability to pay attention can become a matter of life and death. So that it's consequential. So behavior absolutely matters. Action absolutely matters. And there's a vulnerability that you have because of the nature of the context you're operating within that your full capacity is not available to you you're actually gonna be compromised as you're maneuvering through challenge. So that's sort of the, 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 the working space of, of what I've been interested in. And partly that's because in some sense, that's all of us at some point in our lives. Sure, there's certain professions like military service members or elite athletes or emergency room physicians for whom that's just, you know, everything's dialed up in some sense, but we've all been there and we all will be there at some point in our life where our actions are consequential. And even if they may not be literally life or death, they can certainly feel like they're life or death. Okay. So training for better attention for all of us has value because of that reality. Okay, so can we dial into the way that we can train attention? We absolutely should dial into the way that we train attention. And the way in which a decision is made um, to, to focus on something that's its own landscape you know is it is it contingent is it emergent is it based on your framework whatever it is let's just take that as a given some decision has been made of where to focus 
That's what we'd call now instantiating the flashlight voluntarily pointing towards something, internal or external, right? So you've got voluntary focus going on. It's absolutely the case, and we know this because we live in a modern world with tons of external distractions, that we can have this willful decision made to focus, and then we don't necessarily know in the next moment where the flashlight is pointing. Oftentimes it is getting pulled because it can be pushed and pulled to something that seems um, like it just drew us to it. So the ping of your phone or a notification on your on your screen or somebody calling your name without even knowing it, your, your flashlight's going to immediately point to that. And you know, even going back to that uh, example I gave of you're on a darkened path and you've got a flashlight pointing and it's really helping you see what's most important for you to be able to maneuver through. If in that same moment you heard rustling behind you, the flashlight's going to go back to where you heard it from. So this capacity to decide where to focus, very powerful. Knowing where your focus is in any moment, which is more the job of this alerting system, or you know, we might even call um, uh, meta-awareness, which we can get into, also just as important because no matter where you decided to put it, there's no guarantee it's there. So this is, this is the landscape of what you were saying a moment ago, stress. Stress is a landscape often of ambiguity, ambiguity, uncertainty. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. Army War College has this great phrase that I think that they actually coined, VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which now is coming up more and more in sort of business settings. But what I love about that term is that it perfectly captures conditions in which there's going to be a battle in your own mind between where you want the flashlight to focus and where it may end up. And part of the training, especially as it relates to mindfulness training and the kind of groups that we work with is to understand what we're up against and to train for those circumstances. In the sport and performative-based environments and military and otherwise, it's so easy to get these frames, which is like, let's just use football for an example, is that if a wide receiver is uh, running a route and the ball is coming out before they've turned their head, and because it needs to be on time, that, that is actually um, by design. They turn, the, they flip their head around and the ball's coming out of the quarterback's hand already. It's in flight somewhere, they have to locate it. Then they are, um, to do it well, are required to follow the ball, the tip of the ball all the way into their hands. At the same time, they know that there is a near 200 pound, you know, fast, powerful human trying to, you know, <laughs> tackle them Knock at them high down. speed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it would be, um, from an evolutionary standpoint, it would make sense to stop focusing on the tip of the ball and to protect yourself from danger. Now, this is what makes most sport really interesting is because it is counter to our natural impulses. Extraordinary performance is counter to natural impulses. So it takes incredible training. Now, we can understand that framework. And let me go two ways with you. One is how do we train better the deep focus and, and attention on the tip of the arrow when there's, or I'm sorry, the tip of the ball when there's danger around? That's one that will transport into probably most performative environments. And the second is how does that make, how does this, how is this relevant to us that are sitting in front of computers, answering calls, sending emails, you know, having meetings, sometimes hosting, most of us are not hosting meetings, we're listening, we're participating in some way. So how does this translate in the work life, in the home life, 
and in social settings as well. Right. Such a such a great question. So the first thing is to say we can train to and, and I'm going to put the example, the, the very poignant example of somebody trying to catch the tip of the ball and, you know, the football example, let's put it to the side, but I think it applies there too. So the first thing is that we can train for better focus voluntarily. We can practice over and over again to, to actually view certain aspects of a scene or keep certain ideas in mind uh, and ve be very clear about what the, the focus should be on, right, with precision. We can we can train for doing that better and better. This the, the thing that we probably don't do by default all that often is train to be broadly receptive and aware in an unconstrained fashion. And that's when you this flashlight that is going toward the thing you've dedicated yourself in a voluntary manner to direct your your mind toward when it gets pulled away, you're unaware of it because you're not looking for where the flashlight is. You're just going where you're, you're in the immersive experience of wherever the flashlight went. So cultivating a broad receptive stance, which is that term I used a little while ago, meta awareness an awareness of the contents and processes in our moment to moment experience, not the same as metacognition, not kind of knowing yourself and your cognitive functions, but having an awareness of what's going on right now is such a powerful tool. Because what that says is in addition, it goes back to what you actually said a moment ago, in addition to be able to focus with precision, which I can train for, I can know what my focus should be. I can direct that flashlight willfully to that. If I'm keeping this broad receptive stance, I can be constantly checking on it. Is it where I think it should be? And if not, let's get it back. Let's redirect. Let's okay. redirect. Okay. So, so I want to, I want to do two things uh, right now. I want to start in reverse, which is the meta. And yeah. the, the meta awareness is actually mapped to flow in some states. So the meta awareness is being able to see almost from uh, a helicopter perspective, but, you know, kind of a, you know, hovering over right over uh, you being able to see kind of how the experience is unfolding. Is that how you're thinking about meta awareness? Yes, but I would say it's the opposite of flow because there's a self-consciousness and an awareness of. Okay. The experience it's not the immersive experience it's actually the watching of it so that and, actually is mapped to flow as well okay. yeah and so, so then i guess it depends on how, how how constrained or broad your view of flow is but what i'm yeah. talking about and it, i want to go back to the thing that you said a moment ago which is why does this matter for our actual life for most of us mm -hmm. because the more we watch and the more we're able to see oh look at the flashlight it's over there we start getting a sense of how often we're yanking our own flashlights away from our intended target. And we can know a lot about the nature of what our evolutionary programming has really uh, advantaged us getting pulled away by. So things like threatening information, you know, like you said, the 200 pound guy coming your way, threatening, I better pay attention to that. Of course, my flashlight's gonna be yanked to that, but it doesn't even have to be salient physical threats in your external environment, just the thought of something can yank the flashlight away. So, you know, the, th the three things we're seeing, at least in my work, are, are threatening information, stress-inducing information where there's a sense of overwhelm that I don't have the capacity to meet this challenge, and negative mood. Those are three biggies that we see consistently degrade attentional capacity. And in particular, it seems to be because the flashlight gets yanked away, 
you aren't able to hold the focus where you want it to be. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code Finding Mastery at checkout. Again, that's aquatrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Do those three one more time. The, the mood one kind of like made my mind go blank for a minute. I was, I was tracking on one and two. I was like, right, right. And then you threw mood and I was like, wait, what? So, yeah. so do those three one more time for me. Well, these are things that we know degrade attention. So okay. stress, threat, and negative mood. Stress, threat, and negative mood. So stress. Uh, threat is real and, and perceived. Mm -hmm. And then how do how are you working with stress in this? 
stress is really what we mean by perceived distress where okay so not capacity, threat yeah threat is when there is actual threat and it could be psychological threat stereotype threat etc everything i'm talking about is the contents of the external reality and the inner workings of the mind regardless of the the actual reality if you think that there's a threat and you perceive it that way it will degrade your attention okay so but but that's different than stress for you. Well, I'm just telling you the broad categories of things that tend to show specific degradation and attention. The broad category of perceived and real threat, the broad category of of perceived stress, and frankly, it's all perceived because it's always being translated through the mind, and then negative mood. So those are the things that tend to degrade attention, and they're related to the kinds of things that tend to yank attention away in this exogenous or, or externally driven fashion that are things like fear-inducing information, salient information, novel information, self-related information. They're, they're, you can see how those broader categories of threat, stress, negative mood tie to this more fundamental biological drive to pay attention to certain kinds of content. So how does mood uh, degrade attention? Right. So all of these, in some broad sense, we think are because of where attention gets hijacked to and away from the task at hand. So we can first think that all these three systems that we've been talking about, you know, attention really is a limited capacity system. We only have so much of it. It's a type of fuel. And that fuel can get depleted over the course of, as, as it gets expended for the purposes of using it, you know, we're, we're using it for various things. When I say negative mood, what I'm talking about is mental content that yanks that flashlight away. So really it's, tied to all three of these are tied to something we might call um, mental time travel. So you've got a task in the moment, right? You've got a, a thing you're trying to do. There is a demand that you're trying to engage in, but now the mind is not necessarily in that moment. It's decoupled from it and it is in the past or the future. And when that past or future content is negative, it will tend to gravitate. The flashlight will be drawn to it, magnetically drawn to it, so now there's less resource available for me to direct right now. Um, so things like rumination, worrying, catastrophizing would all go into that sort of transdiagnostic category of negative of mental content. Okay. And then you, you said that attention is a limited resource. Is I get the constraint bit, but I'm not sure I understand how it's limited. And so I, I understand the idea that um, our our energy systems become depleted as we expend lots of processes. And you know whether it's uh, attention or it is effort or whatever it might be from a physical standpoint or a cognitive standpoint, that I do understand the depletion of, of energy systems. And then help me understand how you're seeing like attention being a limited resource as well. Well, it's limited in two ways. In the moment, it's limited because we only have one flashlight. We don't have right. two, three, four. So it's going to be constrained by certain parameters of that's why things like multitasking are actually not real. Mm -hmm. um, and it's limited in what you just said, that there is a, um, a, a temporal aspect to it so that over time, and that time frame could be over the course of a 20 minute mentally engaging task you've got to do, or it could be over weeks. And the principles seem to be the same, is that the more the demand, the more there is a de demand for you to utilize your 
attention. The more rapidly and more reliably we see a decline in its availability. And, you know, let me just say it's very plain of how we're how we're evaluating this. We take people that are we know because we've partnered with them under these particular circumstances, we know they're going to be experiencing a high demand interval. So going back to football, you know, one of the last times you and I had a chance to chat was when we were doing this project with the University of Miami football team. And uh, I remember even asking you, like, how do I how do I make sure that they're going to be in a high demand, high stress interval? You know, it was obvious to me the playing season would be the case. Um, but there would be ups and downs based on maybe what happened last week and they've got another game coming up. And is there so you suggested, well, maybe look at even before they start the season, maybe preseason training, which actually helped us hone in a lot. We were able to partner with the team during the preseason summer training period of time, about four weeks. And so every day they've got practice, they've got physical conditioning, they've got school, they were in summer school. And we already knew from sort of studies in, in typical undergrads that over the course of the academic semester, undergrads tend to have a diminishment in their attention over the course of the semester. And then they got to take final exams. So now the prediction was that the football team over the course of summer preseason training might be doing something very similar, that they also have these academic demands so they may be depleting, but then they have all of these game-related preparatory training, physical and mental demands. And that's exactly what we saw. We sampled their attention and what this other related function, working memory at the beginning of the month, at the end of the month, and sure enough, most people declined over time. So that's the level at which I'm talking about it. It's a lot larger time frame, um, but I think it really gives us insight into how vulnerable we can become because now all of a sudden those same players that degraded in their attentional functioning, their whole season is gonna be determined by how they do in this camp and they have less of their resources available. So the motivation behind wanting to offer some kind of training in that interval comes from that type of result that not only did their attention diminish, by the way, but their their mood and their stress levels, their mood tanked and their stress levels increased. So it's all sort of this combined package. Um, and then the question we had is, well, what type of training is gonna be most beneficial and most protective for people in that kind of high demand interval? So let's, let's just make up a scenario that yeah. people are um, chronically fatigued you know, yeah. there's a there's a high stress let's that's make happening. That for, up, that's not let's real. just make that up. Let <laughs> this this work life, you know, hybrid model is, um, you know, actually quite challenging, and that we're suffering a bit from social connections and you know physical contact and 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 right. And let's just say that the economy was like, you know, for some folks, uh, pretty volatile. So so. So let's just say that people are at home working their asses off and stress levels are high. Mood is compromised, which we know to be the case. What, what have you found? Well, let's throw in one more thing. There's a threat to your actual physical well-being and safety and health. Like mm -hmm. maybe there's a global pandemic happening. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Okay. Good. Right? So it's like we're on the same the, page. We've got a threefer. We've got a, a, a situation in which stress, threat, poor mood all are at play. Um, and what we've what we're seeing is that it's protracted. It's not a week or two. It's not the daily ups and downs of life. You might have a good week or badly week, but there's sort of this ongoing aspect to it. Um, so that even our normal ability to kind of bounce back if there was some challenge is is not happening because the circumstances. Um, what well, what we're seeing is what you expect to see. There's going to be a decline in all of those psychological health variables, but also attention. 
And I never thought that, you know, when we see this, this pattern of degradation and attention over high stress intervals, like in elite athletes that like we just talked about, or, or service members, or even firefighters during an intensive fire season, it's almost like all of us are in that same interval now. And that flashlight that we talked about when you want to direct it toward the email or report you've got to write is now all of a sudden getting yanked around by this other kind of content. And if you're not checking in with regularity and training yourself to do so, the chances of you being able to even notice that you're off task to get it back, it's going to be less and less. And soon enough, your performance is compromised. You know what pulls our attention better than anything else right now is like numbing content. You know, the dopamine hits from TV or social media or, you know, whatever, you know, chit chat conversations that used to be four minutes over a water cooler are now like 40 minutes, you know, uh, at, at the beginning of Zoom calls or something or Teams calls. So we're looking for escape mechanisms because we are so tired. And so that being said, how are you, what interventions are you finding to be useful in the training mechanisms? You know, I would say, you know, just to go back to what you just said, we're looking for escape. I don't know if that's true. I think that what we're seeing is we're engaging in certain kind of behavior much more often and much more by default. But I can tell you myself and and in people that are in my kind of close circle, there's many times when you're scrolling and you're like, why am I doing this? I don't want to be doing this. It's like you wake up in the middle of some kind of dazed state where you realize, oh, the thing that I'm doing by default, you know, in fact, I would say now I actually, of course, watch for it, but I have no memory when I'm in that moment of realizing I've been on Instagram for way too long. No, you're not. We're saying the same thing. Or whatever. We're, attract, but I, we're attracted well, to that. And then at some point, the the conscientious part of us, you know, the ambitious part of us goes, what am I doing? And it doesn't even feel good. Right. But what I'm saying is, yeah, we're on the same page about that. What I'm, what I'm saying is how do I have no memory of picking up the phone, finding the app, clicking on it, and actually being here. Like all of that happened in some kind of ballistic fashion, right? So so now we get more granular with our attention of like, I'm not monitoring at all. And I have no meta awareness. So this is the other thing that we know from our research is that over the course of time, not only does our attention start declining, but our capacity for meta awareness is also degrading. And we found this by the way, over the course of a 20 minute task, as well as over the course of multi-week intervals. So the thing that we were thinking maybe the way to try to approach all of this is, well, what if we could do a training where we targeted meta-awareness? We targeted the capacity to watch our mind. And this is where the mindfulness work actually came in is because it was sort of this not obvious solution. You'd think if you wanna train for better focus, practice focusing. But the reality is if you wanna train for better focus, practice noticing. And so then the, the quest became not only do we, how do we offer mindfulness training, how do we offer mindfulness training to time pressured people under high stress intervals when they may have no interest in doing this? Uh, you know, it's not an well, easy welcome thing. To, welcome to my world. I mean, that's, well, that's exactly, right. that's exactly where, you know, like 10 years ago when I introduced mindfulness to the NFL, it was like, what, you know, like you want us to what? And so. Right. You're ex you're exactly on it. And so l listen, thank you for the research, you know, to have something to point to. And so it, it is meaningful work that you've done here. So so what it, um, drilling down more specifically, when you're doing some of this open monitoring awareness, mindfulness training, you found some protocols that have been useful as well. Can you talk through some of those? 
Sure, sure. And I would say that the protocols actually do all three, uh, train all three systems, right? So let's just take even a very, I'll do it fast, a, a, a focused attention practice. Focus on breath-related sensations. When you notice your mind has wandered away, redirect. So the first part is take that flashlight, get very granular, almost laser focused to something that's the target for your attention. Let's say it's like the tip of your nose while you're breathing. That gives you a lot of a possibility to have strong signals, noise, noise distinctions. So you can get even granular on like, no, I'm actually not even on the tip of the nose. I'm even in the, on the whole face or I'm thinking about my next vacation. So it allows you to train the, the, the directing of the flashlight, the broadening and receptive stance of the floodlight and the juggler's always watching to make sure behavior and uh, goals are aligned. So the focused attention practice does this. When we think about something like open monitoring, which I know you've talked about on, on, on your podcast, you're actually just targeting the floodlight. Because what typically happens is that we're terrible at taking a broad receptive stance. Things are enticing. We want to move the flashlight toward them. We want to get pulled into them. We want to engage with them. So how do you actually practice taking an observational stance? And that's its own, own um, <laughs> learning to do. Um, so that now you're off task when you've actually engaged instead of you're on task when you've actually engaged, you're kind of flipping it. And then we do things in the same sort of um, uh, suite of practices like that is a totally different category, um, which we may not probably have time to talk about, but um, loving kindness practice or what we call connection practice, because that in the suite is really regarding kind of reminding yourself of the broader intentions of why you're doing this and then to use that flashlight and floodlight in the interpersonal domain. So what we found is that offering a suite of practices like that over the course of four weeks with about 12 minutes a day of practice can really help strengthen all three systems of attention as well as improve mood and performance. So we actually just published a paper where we found that not only was depression reduced and um, mood improved, but things like marksmanship in soldiers was improved so that they're not only shooting with more precision but they're not shooting when they shouldn't be which is very important <laughs> one would think yeah that's great that's really it's um you've taken some the some of the principles from the ancient practice and brought it into a laboratory and found some results that are applicable to you know vuca based environments and performers that need to operate you know accurately and at speed so you know it's really fascinating what you've done and just to be uber concrete 12 minutes and I had read somewhere that you had found some findings at eight minutes and and maybe maybe I I, I attributed you to it when it wasn't actually you so have you did you find anything at eight minutes no but others have and I would say you know all of this is a work in progress and when you're talking about humans and asking them to practice mindfulness it's an imprecise science but the way that we came to uh, specifically 12 minutes was uh, in the context of asking people to do a lot more, 30 minutes. And what we found is that nobody's doing 30 minutes. So we said, okay, at what point, how many minutes on average are producing beneficial effects? And it was 12 or more. So it's almost just like a threshold, a minimum effective dose to see attentional protection or improvements in high stress groups. So different practices, different goals may, may result in different uh, specific number of minutes, but this was in our hands for this type of metric. And so, you know, the, the, the ancient practice of mindfulness kind of would roll their eyes right now. The, those practitioners like, what are we talking about slicing minutes for? <laughs> you know, you'll never, we're not getting to wisdom slicing minutes here. 
you know, and then folks that really understand training know that um, there is there is some precision, you know, that we're looking for when we go to quote unquote a gym, whether it's a psychological gym or a physical fitness gym. There's some precision we're looking for. And at the same time, volume is important, you know, so intensity and volume are, are two metrics that we look at. And 12 minutes of um, deep, intense work is going to be likely better than uh, 42 minutes of really sloppy work. All that being said is each time that we are wildly distracted, we have an opportunity to refocus. And so I'm wondering, which is training, which is work. So I'm wondering if you could just comment on this axiom that focusing is a decision and refocusing is a skill. Yeah, I think that that's a great um, summary of what I've just described. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay, perfect. In okay, some good. sense, that is exactly what we're saying. Focusing yeah. is is the goal. That's mm -hmm. the set point. You're saying that I'm setting out to do that. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is actually, yes, it's a skill to refocus. And what that skill requires is an awareness of what is happening. And you can train to have that better, that awareness be stronger and more available to you on demand. Okay, Amishi, where can people go find your work? And I know you've got a book coming out and which is really exciting. And so where can people find your work? So yeah, my new book uh, is gonna be, is out October 19th, it's Peak Mind. And if they wanna learn more about me, just remember my first name, Amishi. It's A-M-I-S-H-I.com. And uh, what are your social handles? Where can people find you on social? I'm on everything. Twitter, uh, Instagram. It's well, Is it all Amishi? It's all Amishi, Amishi Pija or Amishi Ja. Okay, perfect. And then <laughs> that'll be all in the show notes and everything. And then I want to um, snap back to one thing really quickly is that on the threat um, portion that we're talking about is I've found that one of the great threats for the modern human is the potential threat that comes from how they might be thinking of me. And so yeah. I, I'm using the word me, but I'm using it pejoratively for, for all of us. So yeah. that the fear of another person's opinion is actually quite a constrictor for uh, potential, but it's actually one of those mechanisms that pulls our attention to trying to sort out safety by trying to figure out what might they be thinking of me. So do you have any comments or insights around that mechanism that's at play? Absolutely. I mean, I think that first of all, yes, it's stereotype threat would be another way to think about it. And it either can be a pejorative, uh, this imposing of the notion that somebody thinks you're incapable or that you are very capable and you won't meet the mark. In either way, it's a preoccupation. And we use that term preoccupation, but it, it truly is taking up cognitive resources, or as I put it, working memory bandwidth to address that potential ongoing concern as you're trying to actually do the task at hand. And so partly it's to acknowledge when it's present and its relationship to competing with your attention for something else, and then how to orient to the, its existence in a way that doesn't interfere as much, right? So in some sense, that broadening function that we talked about, we can use toward that landscape of our own mind so that now, yes, you know, the, the, the thoughts that um, somebody has about me, whether they're negative or overly positive is there, but it doesn't have to yank my attention and pull my attention. It's just part of the landscape that I can accept. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm super stoked that your book is here 
And um, I hope people go check it out and check into your work and social and otherwise. And can you maybe make a couple suggestions on a best practice, maybe a reading best practice or doing best practice that has been meaningful for you to help, you know, uh, the rest of us in the quality of our lives? You know, it's so funny. I could give some grandiose answer about a prescription, which you can read all about because it's essentially the culmination of 15 years of work in the book. But one that I go to all the time, use all the time is a very simple one. And you probably even maybe had guests talk about it, but it's just called the stop practice. And it it captures all of these aspects of, of our attention. So stop, like literally what you're doing, stop. Sometimes we're forced to stop, so it's easy. Stop sign, for example. Take a breath just one conscious breath, allowing it to happen at its natural pacing. Observe, really allowing whatever's happening in the inner or outer landscape to just be there and then proceed. And I think of it as a, just a simple brain break to kind of check in. And now all of a sudden, no matter where that flashlight was pointed, you got it in your hand again and you can move forward with your life. So it's stop, S for stop. And what is the T? Take a breath take a breath and then the o is observe and then the p is the uh is proceed the proceed yeah very cool appreciate you mishi stoked yeah. to see your work you know being um pulled together in the book that you're publishing and 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 hopefully it makes it to the widest audience that we can imagine so i want encourage people to go check out uh your work oh appreciate it thank you all right Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.